So the province recently announced some changes to the way they deal with some people dealing with opioid addiction in our province. Not all, just some. And actually, if you look at it, it's a, it's a rather small group. It's, uh, it's pretty small. Uh, it's a group of Albertans with an addiction to opioids that uh, are about to see the program that they rely on, they've been living every day for a long time, change quite quite drastically in some cases. The way it works is these patients are prescribed extremely potent opiates, okay? Uh, you're talking hydromorphone, you're talking fentanyl, the big guns, um, which they go and pick up from pharmacies on, on a very, very strict schedule, closely supervised and monitored. Uh, but that's going away. That's not how it's going to work anymore. Now the province is saying, we're not going to allow doctors to prescribe these meds for this purpose anymore. And we've heard from some doctors say, well, wait a minute, why not? But no, no, doctors aren't going to be doing that anymore. Um, they're taking it out of the hands of pharmacists to dispense these medications for this purpose. Nope, that's not going to work anymore. From now on, it will all have to be done, prescribed, dispensed, dosed in an AHS facility. And there's 11 of them around the province. Okay. So that's how it's going to work. Now, the program continues, just the way that it's administered and the way that uh, the people involved in the program access it has changed drastically. So um, these patients will have to attend an AHS facility each and every day for each and every dose, sometimes several times a day. Um, the ability to pick up enough medica medication to last you for a whole day, or in some cases, I imagine it gets pushed longer, a couple of days, three days, a week, something like that. I'm not sure. We'll find out. Um, that's gone. Now you must go and get every single dose. They say they want to make sure that uh, the medication isn't being diverted. It isn't being sold. It isn't being traded, things like that. Um, it's, it's a big change. And as we find out, you'll see in some cases, it's just, it might drive people right off the program. So joining us to talk about it, we have Ophelia Kara, who is a harm reduction advocate and someone who's in stabilized treatment for addiction to opioids, and Mariana Bela, who is Ophelia's mom. Ladies, thank you both so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Um, uh, Marianne, I'll get to you in a second. I want to start with Ophelia, though. You're in this program. Now, we're told it's only for the most extreme cases where other treatment options have just simply not worked. So tell us about your personal experience and how you ended up in this particular program. Absolutely. Well, first of all, I do not want this program to be like a first line of treatment. I think it should be kept as an absolute last resort. But even as Engler said, the majority of cases can be stabilized with classic treatments. But the majority is not an all-encompassing number. There are some cases that suboxone, methadone, subcalate, things like that just don't work. Yeah. And um, so for me, go ahead. I'm just, so yeah, you've tried, uh, these are for people who have tried, as you say, uh, the OAT programs, taking the methadone, yeah. taking the suboxone, people who've gone through residential treatment, all the rest of this stuff, and it hasn't worked. Is that your experience too? Yeah, I um, I started using fentanyl during the pandemic, um, and I really, really, really tried to get sober with things like suboxone. Um, I actually spent quite a few months off of Suboxone, off of fentanyl, off of all opiates, but it just didn't work. Suboxone itself makes me very, very, very sick. Um, actually, treatments like Suboxone and Methadone, they are actually very, very potent opiates, more potent than something like hydromorphone, for example. But the way that they work is they are partial agonists. So they fill the receptors in your brain, but 
they don't actually, you know, really do anything more than that. They can kind of work for pain relief, but they're partial agonists. That's important to know. So I also tried being completely sober, but all the issues that I had going into addiction, before addiction, all came back. I was severely mentally ill before going into addiction, very, very depressed, very, very angry, very anxious. I could not sleep more than an hour per night. I had debilitating and painful migraines, various other pains. I did not have a high quality of life even before going on to fentanyl. Um, This isn't due to trauma or anything. Like my mom really did her best Mm -hmm. to give me the best childhood that she possibly could, but my brain just doesn't release chemicals the way it's supposed to. That's it. It's a physiological thing for for many, many people. I'm glad you brought that up. Exactly. And I've tried all of the classic treatments. None of it worked. I tried being sober for a few months. It was absolutely awful. And it was even worse because, like, for the first 19 years of my life, I did not know what it felt like to be happy. I did not know what it felt like to enjoy my life. I did not know what it felt like to want to live or care about my own safety or be close with my family, any of that. But it was even worse when I went off of opiates because opiates, to some extent, they help with that. And especially now, like fentanyl was very, very chaotic, very, very destructive, and I do not want to go back onto that. I hope I never, ever have fentanyl in my body ever again for as long as I live. However, So tell me about the program. How does the program work for you? Well, the way it works is I am prescribed a set amount of hydromorphone. I pick it up daily at the pharmacy. And it allows me to live a higher quality of life off of fentanyl, off of street drugs. Um, it, it really it just keeps me safe and keeps me stable until I get to a point where I am ready to go off of it. I, I really hope that one day I will be completely sober, but I'm just not there yet. I go to the pharmacy every single day. I do not, like, I don't pick up a week at a time or anything like that. So how many doses are you given? I know some people under this program do get carries and they can go away for a day or two. How many doses are you given when you show up at the pharmacy? Um, I am given enough to last for 24 hours. When I first started on this program, I was taking six doses per day. Um, for a lot of people with addiction, they will take a dose every hour, every two hours, something like that. And throughout my time in this program, I have actually stretched out my doses. So I'm taking three doses per day now. Okay. But who's prescribing it and who's dispensing it prior to the change? Um, currently, my doctor is prescribing it to me, who I work with and I go into the clinic whenever I need to do a urine test that proves that I'm not taking anything else, and my pharmacist in my neighborhood dispenses it for me. Okay. So, and, and it works quite well for you. Now, what are you concerned about with these changes? Because you're not going to be going to the doctor anymore, and you're not going to be going to the pharmacist, right? That's the change that we're exactly. talking about. Exactly. Yeah, with these changes, um, I would need to spend 12 hours every single day on public transit. That's that's essentially what it is. It would make my prescription completely inaccessible to me because while they are not 
outright ending a prescription like this, they're making it unfeasible. Spending 12 hours a day on transit, that can't be done. It's just not realistic. For instance, I'm paying off my debt right now. I'm almost done. And once I'm finished, I want to go back to school. But with these new changes, I can't do that. I wouldn't be able to do anything else. You'd be riding a bus all day. Um, I'm going to ask you. Every day. And I I mean, I I don't want to drive after taking opiates, for instance. I can't drive. But even if I could, driving after taking a shot, that sounds really, really bad. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm going to get you two to just hold on for a second. I have to take a quick break, and, and then we'll come back and talk a bit more about how you know this this program is changing and what it means for the both of you. We'll do that uh, right after a short absolutely. break. Absolutely. Continuing our conversation now with Ophelia Kara, who is a harm reduction advocate and uh, someone who's in stabilized treatment for addiction, and uh, her mom, Mariana Bela. And Mariana, I just want to ask you because I think the important part of this program is you know we talk about it sort of a last resort for people that are severely addicted. Uh, but it changes lives, right? So just tell me what, what you've seen, how it's affected Ophelia, and how what you've seen it mean to her in her life. Oh, hang on. i got to put I take you off hold in order to do that. Sorry. Go ahead, Mariana. I'm here. I'm here. So I just, first of all, I just want to tell you that um, I unconditionally love my child, and she has my full support on any journey that her life takes her. And also, I am very, very grateful for that doctor who had faith and trust in her to help her her quit the toxic street drugs and, and had faith in her to be able to sort out this difficult situation. So I'm forever grateful for that doctor. Um... The past, so ever since 2020, March, I was so scared. It was so difficult to watch her uh, playing Russian roulette with a syringe of fentanyl, wondering which one will kill her, wondering when should I call the ambulance, should I, or can I just naloxone her by myself? And it was very, very scary. And uh, ever since she is in this program and under the care of this physician, that went away. She is safe. She is stable. She can start focusing on rebuilding her life. And and it's just it's just much smoother and calmer. We have a routine. She worked out her own schedule for. Um, how she takes her medication. We call it medication because it is is medication. medication. It is medication. So she has her own routine. She uh, keeps herself safe. uh, Relative. She calls. uh, There is this nurse. She will tell about it. But but she is virtually supervised taking her her meds. Uh, we became much closer to each other. We we spend lots of time together. Um, the arguments, the fights are gone. Uh, I I always thought that she was an angry teenager, but but that was more than than just sure, that. Yeah. But all that kind of smoothed out, and we just support each other and. Um, I really, really, I, you know what, Say, I don't like that she is doing this, but at least she's alive, and as long as she's alive, I have hope. Exactly. If she is forced back to the street drugs, which I hope will never happen, but if she is forced to go back to street drugs, and if she dies, 
the hope dies with her. Um, Ophelia, the, the, the province says they're doing this because they don't want your medication getting sold on the street or traded on the street. These programs, what you're doing, the way you're operating prior to the change to AHS, that's not an easy thing to do. You are strictly supervised and monitored, are you not? Yeah, and that's another thing. Like, the clinic isn't even open for some of the doses that I need to take. And with how much I've pushed myself to get to three doses per day, I can't just skip a dose. I can't. You'd be sick. But additionally, yeah, I, I am very, very strictly supervised and monitored, and I'm willing to compromise here. I am willing to compromise with the government to prove that I'm not to bring my medication. I'm willing to go in twice a week to do a drug test, for instance, to prove that the only thing in my system is hydromorphone. Because if I do any fentanyl, it would not have time to leave my system if I do two drug tests per week. I am willing to do that. I am willing to video chat with a nurse while I prepare my doses, while I take it. Like I am willing to compromise. It's just I need to keep access to this medication. And with this new legislation, I would be losing access to it. What happens but I'm willing to compromise with them about the diversion thing. That, I am willing to. That's what I'm wondering, Ophelia, and we're almost out of time here, so I want to know if this, well, it is, it, this change is happening. What does it mean for you? I mean, like you say, the program, it, it, you can't work it. You, you just can't, right? I mean, so what does this mean? Yeah. Well, I'm really hoping that I can get an exemption to this new legislation because there is so much evidence, both objective and subjective, that I am not diverting it, that this really, really helps me. I'm not in contact even with anyone who would even want to buy it. Like my best friend, even if I told him, hey, do you want to buy some of my drugs? He'd say, what is wrong with you? Do you have a fever, a brain tumor? Do you need to go to the hospital? What is wrong with you? Because mm -hmm. I'm not in contact with anyone who would even want it. But even if I did divert it, I would get so, so, so sick. Jay, I just want to tell one more thing that I am writing a letter. I'm writing a letter to Jason Copping and Mike Ellis and uh, uh, trying to ask for an exemption for my daughter. So I'm going to mail it out and on Monday. And you can confirm, too, that, like, you know, if I go into withdrawal or something, I still wait until the exact time for my scheduled doses, that I'm not diverting it, that I am the one who is taking this, right, Mom? That's correct, yes. But if I were to lose access to my medication, I'm worried that all of my progress would be undone, that I would go back onto street fentanyl or that I would need to get my medication like some other less reliable way that my relationship with my mom would suffer, my relationship with myself would suffer, that I would start engaging in these risky behaviors again, things like that, that I wouldn't be able to go back to school that I would accumulate more debt that I'm almost finished paying off. Like, I really, really hope that one day I can get to her, but I'm not there yet. And the change that I've seen in myself, even, with having this prescription has been incredible, and I just want to keep that stability and that yeah. safety. Yeah. I am willing to compromise with the government here, but I need to keep access to it. Ophelia, Mariana, unfortunately, I am out of time, but I can't thank you enough, uh, both of you, for joining us today. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. But thank you so much for giving voice to this issue. We really appreciate it. Thank you. We'll do this again. Thank you both. That's Mariana Bela and Ophelia Cara uh, talking about this situation. It's that stability. That's the key, right? 
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.